this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. I'm an I6 resident at the University of Southern California. I'm also the incoming vice president of TSRA um, after serving on the executive board for two years now. Hello. I'll have Dr. Erkman um, introduce herself. Hello, uh, I am Sherry Erkman. Uh, who's calling? Thoracic surgeon at Temple. And uh, I am part of the Thoracic Surgery Directors Association and a Thoracic Surgery Direct Program Director at Temple as well. All right, so TSRA and TSDA are super excited to be starting this series. It's a wellness webinar series. We're gonna focus on a bunch of different topics um, relevant for all career levels. So we're really excited about it. TSDA is really excited about it. And this will serve as hopefully a resource for all levels, uh, trainees through attendings and medical students as well. Um, our aim was to develop a framework through which we could offer webinar topics, and we wanted to hit on several different elements of the framework with each uh, webinar. So the framework for wellness or well-being uh, consists of the following elements that we have come up with, uh, Dr. Erkman and I. Um, this includes progress towards the goal over here, um, work commensurate with training interests and mission, uh, value and social re relevance and interconnectivity, as well as resilience and rejuvenation right in the middle. So all of these things can be relevant in both the professional and the personal settings. Um, our first webinar today is on dealing with complications. So hopefully we'll hit on several of these points and um, I hope you enjoy. So Dr. Eric, would you like to say a, a couple words from the TSDA standpoint? Yes. Uh, so well-being is not just an individual responsibility. It's part of the environment uh, because the, your workplace environment directly impacts your wellness. And we're really looking for the workplace to be a source of well-being, not uh, something that detracts from it. So how do you get the most out of your work so that it's actually rejuvenating and empowering you for a lifetime of um, a career. Uh, it's really important that you know this is a joint effort between residents and thoracic surgery directors because we're working together. There's no textbook for this. We really need your input not only today in the Q&A, but you have our email addresses here uh, in developing future content. And this will be directly uh, posted on both the TSDA and TSRA websites so that we can refer to them and use them as, uh, as our chapters for review, just like any other topic. And Dr. Olds, go ahead. So with that, thank you. I'd like to introduce our panelists. Um, thank you everyone, all of our panelists for joining the webinar. We really appreciate it. I think this will be a really good series and I'm excited to be kicking it off today. So I'll start with Dr. Wells. Dr. Winfield Wells is from the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and also University of Southern California. Um, he has been practicing cardiac surgery for over 40 years, also served as program director and has been training residents throughout the entirety of his career. Uh, he's been named in lawsuits during his career and has also acted as a medical legal expert on hundreds of cases for both the defendant and the plaintiff's side. So his opinions will be and perspective will be really useful. 
Um, we also have Dr. Serge Kopsa, who completed his MD and PhD in biomedical engineering at Yale and trained in, trained in the I6 residency at Columbia. And then he spent an additional year there as an advanced fellow in heart failure and transplant. And he just joined the University of Southern California as a faculty member in adult cardiac surgery last year. So thank you so much for joining. And Dr. Erkman, I'll have you introduce the other three yes. panelists. We have Dr. Mara Antonov. She is an associate professor of um, cardiac and uh, thoracic and cardiovascular surgery at MD Anderson. She's also the program director and she has uh, leadership positions in women in thoracic surgery and a leader uh, not only in um, wellness, well being, but also uh, workforce and understanding how we can get the most out of our workforce. We also have Dr. Jessica Donington. She's a professor of surgery and chief of thoracic surgery at the University of Chicago. She's also representing all leadership positions uh, on the national forefront. It's uh, an honor to have her here and uh, giving us insight from, uh, from that experience. We have Dr. Ian Bostock. He's an assistant professor of thoracic surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina. He has specific interests in um, not only thoracic oncology, but also mentoring uh, people with diverse backgrounds and bringing uh, some diversity to cardiothoracic surgery. So thank you so much everyone for being here and I will pass it back over to Dr. Olds. So we'll ask everybody who's joining, uh, we don't have a ton of people, but um, for those of you who are there and, and I'll maybe put this in the chat, feel free to use the Q&A for questions. Um, we'll start with the first question, I think. Um, the first question is, what do you wish you were told as a trainee about dealing with complications? This is kind of open-ended. Um, and I don't know if one of you wants to start uh, with that question. Uh, I guess I could start. I'm probably the, the most recently out of training. Um, well, really anything. Uh, we weren't really told much at all. Uh, I think from talking to a lot of uh, people I trained with, that's probably not unusual. Um, uh, I can definitely say in the last you know year or so that I've started practicing, um, it's been a, uh, a steep learning curve. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, both how to best try to avoid complications and 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 anticipate them, uh, but it also has to do with how to deal with the fact that they will inevitably happen, uh, and and by that I mean both on a personal level, but also. Um, when speaking and 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 dealing with patients and their families, um, you know, for me, obviously, I recently uh, kind of made the change from a trainee to uh, to a teacher of sorts, and a big part of that, especially as you know, and at our program here at USC, uh, where residents are so involved and do so much, uh, I think that's that's another big uh, big thing about learning how to help them deal with things and also how to appropriately um, kind of graduate responsibility and, and, and know what is appropriate to, to uh, entrust uh, trainees with and what isn't. 
so those are things that I've I've been learning a lot about and uh, and really haven't haven't been taught anything about it in in training. Dr. Vostok, um, did yeah. anybody talk to you or teach you about uh, complications, bad outcomes? What do you do? What what kind of framework did you have going into your practice as you started? Uh, I think I, I I talk about I talked about this many times with different mentors. Uh, one of which is present now. Dr. Antonov and I used to have our uh, conversations in between OR cases where we would buy a latte and talk about life and and potential issues going forward and discuss everything from professional development to career to things that may happen. Right, but I think it doesn't. For me, it really it hits you way differently when it's your name on the chart and you're not dealing with somebody else's complication because I, I was exposed to, of course, many complications and many different strategies to manage things, good outcomes, bad outcomes. I saw everything, right? As everybody that goes through training in CT surgery, but it, until it's your name on the chart, it's very different. Uh, one thing that I found myself struggling a lot, you know, this is I'm just finishing my second year in practice. So, and, and even just this period of time has allowed me to really learn a lot about myself and how to manage these things, even from the beginning. Uh, but um, what I did notice is that when I first started, let's call it my first six months, uh, the issue with, the, with dealing with the complications was my, my inner narrative. Like I was questioning every, every, when things started happening, which they will, like Dr. Kopsa was saying, things happen. The percentages for complications come from somewhere, right? It happens to everybody. But, uh, but when it starts happening to you as the provider, you start questioning everything you do, questioning everything you know, whether you're good enough, whether you should be doing what you're doing, whether you should have taken on that big case, whether you should have passed it on. And then you get into this kind of whirlwind of thoughts in which you're questioning everything you, you, that led, led to that point. And then I noted that it started messing with my confidence and my ability to move the, the case forward. So um, I actually had to like retrain myself even just six months in to change my narrative to a little bit of a, uh, and then and I started reading things and, and podcasts and all these things trying to figure out if this was imposter syndrome, if this was anxiety, or if this was just me not understanding the growth of each, each situation. So what I really thought was helpful for me was to switch my inner narrative to a growth mindset rather than criticism and and, and which, I mean, in the growth mindset, I still go through every single step of the case and figure out what I did wrong and how I could do better. But the, the things I say to myself are different, you know, instead of calling myself names and, and, and then just like kind of belittling, belittling myself in the process. Now I'm like, okay, maybe this is what I'm going to, this is what I have learned from this situation. This will never happen again, because now I know this. This is how I'm going to prevent it. And this is how I grow and tackle the next hard case. Because guess what? The hard cases keep coming. Um, you know, another one of my mentors at, at Anderson uh, told me, like, for the first year, you're going to think that every case is the hardest case you've ever done. And you know what? It's not true. You're just not that good at the beginning. You're just going to get better with time. And it's just going to feel really hard because it is hard. Because CT surgery is very hard. But uh, it doesn't, you know, so every opportunity is just a little bit of growth. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Antonoff, I wonder, as 
current program director, do you have input about this in terms of what you wish you were told or what you tell your residents? I, I do. And I, I try very hard to change what I say to the residents based on what I wish I, I had been exposed to. And um, like other folks on the panel, as a trainee throughout residency fellowship, I did break bad news to people, people a lot. And I dealt with complications a lot. And I had a lot of mentors show me how they did it. But the part that was, was never communicated to me or that didn't quite click. Of course, you understand it's not your own patient and that it's going to feel different when it's your own patient. But the part that doesn't, that, that, you know, building off what Dr. Bostock said is you're watching all these mentors who are established. They're, they're very confident. They're very well, um, well uh, known in their careers, well established. And they really didn't struggle with one complication here or there. It wasn't a big deal because they had a history of decades worth of outstanding cases, great outcomes. And one complication here or there wasn't such a big deal to them. And I would say that's part of it. The other part that I really never perceived at all was that the people whom I watched have complications and soar through them with their confidence intact didn't look like me. They were not underrepresented in our specialty. They didn't start with any imposter syndrome to begin with. And like Dr. Bostock said, for those of us who haven't necessarily been looking around and seeing people who look like ourselves, maybe didn't have a sense that we felt in, felt uh, fit in, maybe had a sense of isolationism. It, all it takes is one real bad complication to really exacerbate that sense of feeling isolated, that sense that you don't belong there. And to take someone who maybe didn't have imposter syndrome even well into their career and really turn it into a spiral. And so I think for me as a program director, of course, I'm looking out for all of my trainees, but even those who may be confident now while they're dealing with other people's complications, I try to really communicate to them, you know, the things that I've been through, I've been really open and honest and vulnerable and shared with them what it feels like to question yourself and how important it is for us to be able to get up and do it another day, to be able to help more patients, to realize that we help more patients than we harm and that we give up if we lose our sense of self or our, our belief in our own uh, ability to do right for patients, that we're not gonna be able to help as many patients. And so I think um, you know, that's part of the, the, the experience I wish I'd had as a trainee. I wish I had been around mentors who had been through periods of self-doubt um, and I'm really grateful that Dr. Bostock has brought up his own emotions that I can share, you know, feelings that I've had during hard times so that for current trainees, when they do find themselves out in practice, they won't think that it's just them, but that this, this is something other people have experienced. So you, you both brought up the point about when you're questioning yourself and being able to change the narrative and be constructive about that. That's very hard to do when other people are also questioning you, namely um, a peer review process or even a legal process. So um, Dr. Wells, will you tell us some of your experience in terms of uh, dealing with it, not only on a personal level, but uh, when you're um, talking to a perhaps even a, you know, a subpoena or a peer review uh, reviewer. No, uh, glad to deal with that. And, you know, we've been talking so far about how we as physicians react to the complication, but very important aspect of this is how you deal with a patient and a family when you've had a bad complication. And this is critically important 
both to the patient and family, but also to the likelihood that this is going to lead to something bad. And so my advice to you um, and to any resident is, number one, you need to be completely honest. The worst thing you can do is leave the patient or the family feeling that you didn't tell them the truth or that you tried to hide something. You weren't perfectly open. You weren't perfectly transparent. That's the worst thing. The second worst thing you can do is leave the family with the impression that you don't really care. That's the worst one. And that often leads to the kinds of bad uh, things that none of us want to face, which is the threat of litigation. So be honest, be open, speak to the family every day. Not just once that you tell them, I had this complication and maybe there's going to be a long convalescence. You need to go back and be sure that patient and family understands you know, that you care and that you're doing everything you can to mitigate the consequences of that complication. Um, these are things that I had to learn on my own. I agree with everybody so far. It's, it's usually not well talked. I mean, the first time I had a major complication, I wished that I had the opportunity to watch people, you know, who knew how to do this. Uh, uh, I'd watched them when I was in my training and, and I, I never had that opportunity. Has anyone else had um, a similar experience in terms of, um, you know, the legal process, if they feel comfortable sharing, um, what would you recommend in terms of, you know, dealing with that yourself uh, while you're going through uh, a legal situation or, or uh, a family situation in terms of keeping, keeping yourself kind of centered? I guess my one recommendation is, I guess I always want to, I'm a, I'm a child of lawyers. I always want to make sure we all talk in the right language because I think we feel uh, pain and difficulty um, for a lot of different reasons. So, you know, what is a complication and what is a bad outcome and what's a medical error? Because I think our feelings really can differ with each one of those. We can have terrible outcomes and there could be no medical error made. We can also make these huge errors in the, and you know our patients don't have a complication. And I think those are very different learning steps. Um, so where complication falls in that I think is pretty important because uh, I bet a lot of our complications don't involve medical errors. Um, I guess I always uh, say, um, I, I totally agree with Dr. Wells that if there is a bad outcome that is happening, uh, your FaceTime with the family is indispensable uh, and with the patient as they recover. Um, and I guess the other people I always speak to when I think I have a bad outcome um, coming or it's come is I start talking above me. Um, so I, if I, if that means I have to reach out to medical legal within the hospital, risk management, my chair, my chief, all those people. Uh, it's way better if you're the one who talks to them than have someone else talk to them. To the point um, when I was a chief, when I wasn't a chief, 
And I would have a really, I, I knew there was a bad case coming that, you know, this patient could die in the operating room. This patient may not have a bad out. You know, there was a good chance. I would call my chief and I'd say, you know, this isn't, might not go well. And he, you know, they take their time. What is it? What are your plans? And I think when you do that, lo and behold, someone really does have your back because it does show that this, this was going, you know, this complication is not a medical error. It's not that I panicked. It's not that things went, that I did something wrong. It's that we went in in this bad situation. And I think that's a very different conversation than when you have it uh, afterwards, even if you were not liable in either case. It also sometimes means a second set of hands might show up in the operating room, and it's also a super nice thing. But uh, I think those those things help to to um, or set uh, or get around some of the badness that can surround uh, our complications, and especially, like I said, those which are not at all related to medical error. So we have a question in our uh, Q and A. And it asks how, uh, this is from uh, Dr. Vignesh Raman at Duke, how freely and candidly do you acknowledge errors with patients and families? I'm pretty upfront about it. I mean, if it's something, it's one thing if there's no outcome to the patient at all, I don't know that you, I don't know what I would say, that you didn't see a lymph node or something and you went after it. But if there's an error, even if things went well, I usually kind of talk my way through it under the understanding that if something ever does come of it, you would have withheld it. So I will sometimes tell people, oh, I was surprised. Oh, we talked, you know, this was not as I had anticipated. Um, but I think that you have to, it, it, in the sense of truthfulness, you have to be pretty upfront with people. Yeah, I, I would agree totally with that. And my only advice would be, Choose your words carefully, and particularly choose your words carefully when you document what went on in the operating room, if, if this event occurs in the operating room, uh, to the point of before you create that document, you may even want to run it by your colleagues, somebody who maybe is a little bit more experienced, because those words are going to come back to haunt you if you don't express them carefully and thoughtfully uh, should litigation occur. So thinking carefully about how you talk to the patient, family and document are all very important. And you're going to see those words again and hopefully not regret them uh, should there be litigation. Where do you get this advice? Um... You know, where, where, what are the sources of advice? I know that Dr. Donington talked about going to your chief or your chair, but where did you uh, acquire this knowledge? Um, I, I, be, I got interested in medical legal uh, problems early in my career and uh, began reading cases very early in my career. And not surprisingly, the same kinds of problems come up over and over again. Uh, poor documentation, uh, not being open and honest, uh, and maybe most of all, leaving the patient or family with the impression that you don't care, that you've got other things to do that are more important. 
then see this through with them. And uh, I think as Dr. Donegan referred to, you can have a terrible complication. Uh, maybe even, let's be honest, not be at your technical best. And nothing results from it because the family believes that you did everything you could to take care of the patient, which in fact you did. You just didn't have your best day. In terms of communicating with the families, um, I will say that one thing I do that helps me and I think helps the trainee in the room is that when there's something that I need to go communicate to a family member after a case that wasn't what I expected or wasn't what the family might be expecting, I actually take a minute and practice what words I want to use because you're tired. Not that I'm trying to mince words or be, you know, manipulative, but mostly because I want to make sure that I'm specific and I choose the best words for the situation that aren't confusing and are very clear about what happened. I actually, I don't practice, but I, I kind of say it first to the resident and say, I'm going to go tell the family, you know, A, B, and C. And I think this is a good word choice because of blah, 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 blah. And I think, you know, and sometimes I get feedback from the trainees. Usually I don't, usually they say, thank you for sharing that with me. That's helpful for me, but it's helpful for me personally to kind of practice or think through my head, kind of script out the best way to describe what happened and what I want to share and what I don't and what's, what's relevant. Um, one thing I would say, and I see this kind of pertains to the question that Dr. Lucas put in the chat is that you have to be prepared that sometimes, even if you say things very clearly, or you pick the best words. If it's not what the family is expecting, they may have an emotional response. They may be upset. They may be angry with you. And it's, it's important that you validate their feelings. Um, it doesn't mean that you should take the blame for things that weren't your fault or to, you know, change what you're saying in any way, but absolutely validate how they're feeling. Let them know that it's normal for them to feel that way, that you are here to support them, that there are other resources to support them. You can offer to get other professionals from the hospital, depending on how severe the complication is, whether it's a um, member of the clergy, another member of their family, a social worker, other people, but mostly validate them. And if they aren't in a place where they want to hear details or they want to talk right that moment, then make yourself available. And I know that <clears throat> different people have different um, feelings about this, but when there has been a significant complication or things aren't going the way that I expect, I do provide pretty direct contact information for myself to the family members in, in those situations. I know not everybody does that same thing, but it gives the families that sense of availability. Um, and, and just, and sometimes people call with additional questions. Sometimes they don't, but I think it gives them a sense of comfort that they know that they can reach you. If you do say, this is my personal cell phone. I understand if you don't want to talk about things right now, but as questions come up, this is how you can reach me. I don't know if other people do that, but that's one of the things that I do. Great strategy. You know, uh, I want to say as a, you know, the most junior member currently in, in my department and sort of first year attending, especially working a lot with uh, heart failure patients, uh, mechanical circulatory support, transplant, uh, you know, a lot of the cases that I do are very uh, just high risk and, and complicated. And even though knock on wood, I don't think I've had a major uh, medical error yet. I'm, I'm sure I will, but uh, I have definitely had complications and 
And God knows I have a lot of uh, bad outcomes just largely because of the patient population. And so I can't overemphasize, I think, the importance of what Dr. Wells and others have said about building the relationship and have, and maintaining the relationship with the family. And, and I think for me, that starts before surgery. Uh, and so I have started, um, and I don't want to suggest that in training, uh, you know, but, but I make sure that I, for these, uh, for, for all of these cases that I have a personal conversation and consent with the patient and their family. Uh, when I do that, I, um, I prepare them for the very real possibility of, of a suboptimal outcome. Um, sometimes, depending on the situation, I will even exaggerate a little bit because I think it's always better to prepare someone for the real possibility of something not going well. And I make sure I use, um, I use words that people re react to. Uh, I don't just kind of, you know, go with a list of complications. I use words like, you may end up on dialysis. You may end up disabled with a stroke. You may end up paraplegic. I don't know, big words that that people really react to and and gives them a real sense of of the risks involved even so as as you know some of the things that we do are so complex that uh it's really hard to for people to fully understand but then when uh you know when when the if, if there are complications and the bad outcomes happen uh i uh, i definitely uh sort of do what people have said which is on it literally on a daily basis, even on my weekends off, I touch base with the family, I update them. Often that just means saying, look, I'm sorry, things are still not going well, but but we are doing everything we can and we will continue to keep you posted and 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 um make sure we're we're um you know uh trying our best. And I have you know I have had people as as people as others have said with very bad outcomes who truly felt that we were doing everything we could and we really cared, which we did, um, you know, be, be accepting of that because sometimes there's just nothing you can do to, to improve things. But I think it's very important. I have a, a question for the group. What happens when the family, uh, cuts down and shuts down communication with you, you're reaching out and perhaps they're looking at a second opinion elsewhere or uh, seeking um, even uh, legal um, consultation. What, what can you do? Um, and if anybody has experience on the opposite side, you know, that you've been, uh, you've seen somebody else's complication uh, and you're evaluating them. How do you handle either of these situations if you've had if you've been in this situation? When, whenever I've seen kind of bad uh, um, complications transferred to a the, to a bigger medical center to be managed, uh, my strategy has always been uh, full transparency and honesty. But I think based on the conversations that we've had with all or what everybody has said, like the choice of words is very important, right? So I really believe in not 
in, in being very honest with the patient and their family, but also uh, giving the other providers, the other health providers, some grace and some some compassion in what's happened. So I never say things like, you know, they they really did a number on you. Like they should have done this and that. Like I really choose my words very carefully because I believe that at least we should uh, uh, operate under the assumption that everybody's trying to help the patient, right? So I I, I am very uh, careful with with how I say things then. But I, but I nevertheless, if the picture is bad, I paint it bad. And I say, this is what we're dealing with. It's not good. We have all these problems going on. They tried their best, but you know, you're here. It's a bigger medical center. We're going to try to help you. And then, uh, and if they're really upset about what's been happening, then, and I, and I, and I get the sense that they're a family that's already looking at litigation or already showing these like you know, aggression towards staff or really like very tough to handle, then, then I think having a, a low threshold to involve, involve other people, like Dr. Donington was saying, like, high, like risk is uh, um, having, having a risk management come by is super helpful. They sometimes help to bring the temperature down in the conversation and, and, and try to uh, make amends. And then I think as, 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 you, as you establish a relationship in that setting where they start trusting you again, I think everybody kind of settles down where it's, a, it's, a, it's tough for the first few days for, because they already have such anger towards healthcare providers because of what's been going on. I want to just actually flip it also to the trainee standpoint. So in terms of trainees, how do trainees and residents handle these situations. I I wonder if if maybe the junior attendees, Dr. Cubs, if you maybe want to comment on that. Have, have you had an experience with a complication in residency? How did you handle that? And what would you tell other trainees? Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, I've I've obviously made mistakes uh, as a process of of training, um, and I know I know others have too. Uh, I have, you know, been fortunate in that um, none of the ones that I've been involved were were sort of devastating, but uh, but they have definitely, you know, um, been challenging to to deal with. Um, uh, I've luckily had mentors and and uh, you know attendings who gracefully, um, you know, as I do now, sort of took that ultimate responsibility in front of the families and the patients onto themselves because that that is the nature and sort of the social contract of the uh of the training environment that we live in uh but it is definitely true especially earlier in in training as you are as you're learning and you're really i mean we we used to kind of callously say uh you know just try not to kill anybody because you're really trying to to figure out what 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 you're doing and how to do it right and you're not always gonna gonna get it uh i think for me what's been extremely helpful is that we had a very close-knit group of residents uh and that's sort of where most of uh my support came from uh we we would talk we would um kind of vent to each other and uh and also reassure each other that uh you know you get through it um uh the attendings were were very good about uh obviously teaching us and correcting us when something 
we did was wrong. But I can't say that uh, luckily that I was ever, you know, berated for a mistake I made or anything like that. And I certainly, I certainly try to, to be the same way with, with my residents now. So um, Dr. Donington is a chief. Let's say that there's a bad outcome on your um, service from a partner. What what happens? What happens after that? What do you do as a chief? And what happens in terms of uh, hospital processes? So when I hear of a, of a bad outcome or I'm watching one happen, uh, one, it's the same thing that uh, you guys are doing with the families. I'm doing with my faculty, <laughs> you know, a lot of communication, communication till it hurts. Um, to really kind of, I don't want to say be in their face, but to say that I want them to to talk to me about it, to make sure that, I, that they have a, somewhere to debrief. Uh, even I have a, a, a very quiet faculty and I need that faculty to debrief too, to tell, tell me what happened. Let's talk through it. Where was the error? What happened? Um, and then, you know, make sure we kind of go through plans of, of how to move on and, and, and what we can change so it doesn't happen again. Um, and I guess it's not any different than what we do at M&M, except that it's a private M&M, um, really very much focused on, you know, not only, you know, the patient and how the patient, how to react to the patient and so that, that this error doesn't happen again or this bad outcome, but also to the faculty, you know, how, how are you being protected how are you looking out for yourself and what can we as a team do to make it better? But yeah, I kind of uh, definitely kind of have like, a, and I almost want to think of them as three kind of meetings and I don't like set them up on the calendar kind of meetings, but know that I need to talk to this person three times. I need the real, you know, uh, what happened and, and make sure that they communicate all of it with me. And I don't want to say like the cathartic, but that, and then the kind of problem solving and then the, you know, are you back on the horse? Are you ready? How are you doing? Are you sleeping? All those kinds of things. I think we don't talk often about what happens in terms of the peer review process, in terms of reporting, in terms of what actually happens in your career. Do those things follow you? Um, I wonder if someone could comment on that. Maybe Dr. Wells could comment on that or Dr. Antonoff. No, sure, I'd be glad to, to comment on it. Um, if you have a serious case, and particularly if it's fully litigated, and, and if you're found uh, to be at fault, uh, and a settlement or uh, a verdict is, uh, comes down against you, uh, it's going to be reported to a national database. Uh, that's the first thing I think all physicians ought to know, and many don't. Uh, there is a reporting limit, and that limit is $30,000. So if there is a settlement made on your behalf or a payment made on your behalf for over that, it's going to be in a national database, and it's discoverable. Also, anytime you go to join uh, a faculty or a medical staff or anything, you're going to be asked if you have had malpractice. Uh, uh, cases. And the 
most important thing about that question is that you need to be completely honest. You need to uh, not have selective memory or a poor memory about it. You need to report any time that, that uh, this has occurred. And what you'll find is if you've been in practice long enough, you will be named in a number of suits where you aren't the primary person involved with that, uh, with that case. It's a little bit complicated because often you're dismissed from the case, but uh, my advice would be that if you've been named in a case, you probably should have some sort of a record of that and be prepared to list it as a, as a malpractice case problem, though you can then disclose that you were dismissed. And, and always you're given the opportunity to say, if this was, if this case was dropped, dismissed, uh, whether it was found in your favor and so on. Uh, but most importantly, you need to be fully honest if, if a case is settled against you because uh, a failure to answer that accurately may be questioned uh, by virtue of the ability for uh, the database to be queried. Yeah, so actually, uh, I was named uh, on a lawsuit as a resident, which uh, which is a separate issue. And I, I know that there are a lot of people who don't uh, don't. I didn't even know at one point that residents could be named on lawsuits. Perhaps it's uh, it's state dependent. I'm not sure. Maybe Dr. Walls knows. But but either way, I was I was named on a lawsuit, uh, kind of like Dr. Walls explained. I was I was not sort of the primary person, but I was part of the, obviously the team, I was the resident on the team that took care of the patient. And, uh, and having recently gone through this process of, uh, you know, uh, getting a new state license, a new job, credentialing, all of that, uh, I can definitely confirm and would actually uh, advise uh, people, uh, even trainees, that if they are ever named to keep um, you know, detailed records, because you will be asked in a lot of detail about what the lawsuit was about, even if you, uh, as Dr. Wells has said, get dismissed from it. Um, I, uh, you know, it was, they don't ask you, has there been, I mean, they do ask you as well, have you actually had judgments against you? But they will just say, have you ever been named in a lawsuit? And I think failure to uh, to answer that truthfully, uh, regardless of, of of what happens with the on the medical legal side, I think if if you don't answer that truthfully, you are bringing into question your um, uh, you know your your um, your own professional integrity. And so uh, definitely, you know, and honestly, from now on, uh, even if I were never to be named at all, I uh, again. I will always have to say yes, I was named, and I will always have to provide the details and 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 proof, which in my case involves, you know, uh, some documentation from the hospital at which it occurred, uh, from the legal, uh, from the uh, law firm that handled it, and ultimately resulted in you know uh, me being dismissed from the lawsuit. But but I always have to report all of that and provide all of that information. Um, and, and so just having that clear and having all those documents, I think is extremely important. 
I see a question in the chat. I don't know if, if we're comfortable kind of shifting gears to answer that question, but um, there's another question about uh, the isolation after a major complication and um, and how, how one can deal with that. And I would say that is something that I, I definitely learned over time as a faculty member because I absolutely, first couple complications, really did feel incredibly isolated. And um, I think that only further exacerbates kind of the shame or um, imposter syndrome or whatever else you might be dealing with. And so <clears throat> a strategy that I learned um, that helped me a lot was that I, I, I came to realize that, especially when something happens in the operating room, but even if it happens on the ward or in the ICU, wherever it is, while the patient is the, the first, you know, victim or whatever, and the surgeon may be considered the second victim, however you want to think about it, whatever terminology, there's so many other people involved and so many other people who are hurting. And so whether there's another surgeon of the same specialty involved or not, there is often a scrub tech, a resident, a CRNA, a circulating nurse, or if it's on the floor, you know, or something happened in the ICU, you know, there's the respiratory therapist, the bedside nurse, there's so many other people who are involved, who are often hurting and don't have any way to debrief or cope. And we, we're used to having the idea of M&M or we talk to our partners or people say, this is what I would have done. But I think it's important for us to realize we might know and believe the way that we've been taught that it's always our fault. It's our name on the chart. It's our fault. But there are other people walking around that hospital, whether it's the bedside nurse in the ICU, whether it's, you know, the um, scrub tech who, you know, is questioning whether they got the suture up fast enough. There are other people who are hurting and they need to debrief. They need your support. And so for me, <clears throat> with more recent complications, is I have tried very hard to be a support and a source of debrief and a, and a sense of comfort to all the other team members. That's actually kept me from feeling isolated. And so I've gone out of my way to make sure that I ask every one of those other people how they're doing, let them talk about their feelings, answer their questions about their involvement in the case and in the situation, give them my cell phone number, make sure they know how to reach me. And whatever the mechanism is in your individual institution, I go out of my way to submit a positive award or a, you know, whatever. Usually there's a reporting system where you can say this person did a good job in this complex case or this difficult situation. So I go out of my way to acknowledge, reward, speak to the supervisors of every single person who's involved, all of the non-surgeons. And I talk to them about their feelings. And that makes me feel a lot less isolated as a consequence. So when you um, debrief and Dr. Wells and Dr. Donington um, helped me with uh, understanding this, if you debrief with a team, uh, that is peer protected, meaning it's not discoverable by um, by uh, an attorney. Is that correct? Like you have a discussion, like Dr. Endenoff is saying, you bring in team members and you're you're talking, you're debriefing, you're talking about emotions. That's protected information. Is that correct? No, no. no. You need to be very careful about this because a peer review process is a specific type of meeting. And if you're going to be discussing this case um, and sharing information that might be of interest uh, to a plaintiff's attorney, you need to be careful not to do it other than in a sanctioned peer review process, because you will be asked in your deposition at discovery 
did you discuss this with somebody? Did you discuss this? And while many times the answer to that is, I don't recall because it was so long ago, um, you don't want to be in a position where you are intentionally not being truthful. You don't want to be caught in that. You don't want to say, no, I never did that, and then have the next doctor deposed and say, did you ever talk to? And they say, oh, yeah, no, we talked about it right afterwards, you know, and and we didn't feel like there was anything that we could have done differently. Uh, so need to be very careful about this so-called peer review that's undiscoverable. And even then, in some states, it's now being questioned as to whether peer review is protected if there is serious injury and liability is, is highly likely. Uh, and they're beginning to crack this, this code of peer review. So be very, very careful. What happens if, if it is an error and it is your fault? We've talked a lot about the case getting dismissed and, and reporting that you were involved. What happens if it actually is something, you know, we all make mistakes, that's just human nature. What happens in that scenario? Well, I have strong feelings about that. Um, you know, I think too often uh, surgeons in particular have a great deal of difficulty facing up to the fact that they've not had their best day and that a patient was seriously injured as a result of their not having that best day. And there's a tendency to want to, to fight this to the end. I did everything I could. Everybody on the team did everything they could. Unfortunately, this bad thing has happened. But if you in fact have truly had a bad day and have not performed uh, up to what you know to be the standard, I think it's very, very important early on to face up to that and, and help the team that's going to try and help you through the process of a, of a medical legal uh, malpractice case, work with you to get the best possible outcome, you know, quite frankly, both for the patient and the family and for you. Uh, because these can be very difficult uh, as they drag on, as there's difficult discovery. And if the medicine hasn't been good, uh, you can dig yourself into a hole that is, um, in my mind, deleterious to the respect people will have for you uh, and for your own personal regard. And so I would, I, I would strongly encourage anybody who knows they have not had a good day and that the medicine they practiced was not within the standard to face up to that early on and then to work with the team that's helping you from a medical legal standpoint to make sure that the damages are not made worse by trying to defend something that's indefensible. And I can say in all honesty, I've seen it happen not, not a few times. And it's, it, it, it makes it worse. Uh, not easy to do, but 
I think every surgeon who's done this long enough is going to have that experience eventually, including me. Thank One you. thing that I, that I wanted to share, to pivot on what Dr. Antonoff was talking about, that I think I have noticed in myself with like deaths or bad outcomes through these past two years, is that you know it is there's no denying that that the surgeon goes through a grieving process as well for the complication, for the good outcome, for what you were trying to do for the patient. Let's say that even if for I'm a cancer surgeon and if I'm, I'm not able to deliver the the oncologic resection, I was I I, I told the patient that I was going to do something like that. You know, like the 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 grieving for the failure, whichever that may be. Um, at the beginning, it's hard to pick up on because you don't expect yourself to be going through that grief, right? But you go through those phases, you go through the denial, you go through the anger, you go through the bargaining. And then finally, you reach the acceptance of what happened and why it happened and how you can make it better. But if you don't, if you don't notice those stages within yourself, you won't be able to process that patient or that complication or whatever that failure may have been in the correct way. So it'll just be continue to get in your way as you advance in your practice. And I think I've noticed that, that that's really important. Like in now I feel like I get through the grieving process a little bit faster. I reach that acceptance maybe with a little bit, bit uh, less um, kind of doubt or, or, or trouble with, with, with my decision-making or or, or self-questioning, but it, it nonetheless is, I think it's really crucial to go through that, that grieving process and, and respect that in yourself as well, because you're human and you're feeling all of these things and bad things are happening to you and that there's no denying that. You just have to, uh, to learn how to process that as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think I, I, I would like to kind of wrap up on a more positive note and just ask if, if any of you have resources that you could recommend for residents to one, learn more, but also recommendations for support and dealing with the emotional aspect of having a complication. And like you said, we're all human. It's okay to have feelings. Uh, well, I feel like Serge said it best. Uh, usually it's gonna be your peer group uh, that supports you. Uh, and hopefully your faculty. Um, you know, I, I would like to think that the faculty uh, is looking for opportunities to mentor all kinds of things, not just teaching people about anatomy and pathophysiology and surgical technique, but also some of these more complex issues like the things we've been talking about today. So, you know, I, I think a lot of this process starts, you know, with talking to your fellow residents, and hopefully you will have a faculty ment mentor that both recognizes or at least is there for you when, when, when you wanna go through this and, uh, and, and talk about it. Thank you, everyone. Um, just some closing remarks on what, what I've heard today. I think, it's important for all of us to have a protocol for when, if a, a bad outcome or complication happens. It's much easier to sort through this protocol ahead of time in the hypothetical than it is when you're actually going through it. So just as Dr. Donington said, I asked her a question about, you have a complication. She said, on the service, this is what I do. 
These are the steps, three meetings. So think about in your own practice, what would you do? And Dr. Bostock started out with, uh, keep it in terms of a growth narrative for yourself, not a, a punishment. Keep it positive. How can I grow from this? And as uh, Dr. Wells was saying, you have to be transparent all the time with not only your families, but also with your colleagues, with your chief. Uh, do it in a peer-protected way if you can to make sure that it's productive. And uh, Dr. Donington is saying, get help from your chief, from your chair, from your colleagues. Um, the medical legal services are very good at counseling um, physicians through the language that has to be very specific and um, language not only in your documentation, but also, also with the patients. We now know about reporting, self-educate about national practitioner database reporting, and self-educate about what are the medical legal processes in your state because we learned that they vary. So um, I guess the take-home point is what Dr. Old said, is you have to find a coping mechanism, a coping protocol, so that you have these resources at your fingertips. Um, but I, I cannot thank this group enough because I've learned so much from the time that you've spent and, and uh, sharing your experiences. Thank you. And Dr. Olds? Thank you so much um, to everyone who shared their experiences and um, provided some kind of background information that we don't often talk about. I think from a residence perspective, um, I, I think it's important to recognize it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to have feelings about that. And I, what I heard here was that it's important to talk to your colleagues, talk to your program director, talk to the attending that you were with if something happens and Find, seek out the resources that are going to be supportive for you. Um, you don't have to be alone in the process. Um, I just want to share this one more time. This is our little graphic. Um, our email addresses are at the bottom uh, for myself and for Dr. Erkman. Um, and when we release the recording of the webinar, we will also provide the email addresses for all of the panelists if anyone uh, would like to ask some more questions. Um, we're really excited about this webinar series. This was the first one. Uh, it'll hopefully be a longstanding series. So far, we have three topics. We have two more topics lined up. Uh, the first will be personal finance and how to set yourself up for success in that arena. And the other one will be on family life and having a family during training and afterwards and how to manage that. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. Uh, we will post the recording online and we will provide details on how to get that. Um, 